It is a new year, and it is a, a fitting way to begin the new year to remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Uh, if you're with us in person, hopefully as you came in, you were able to get one of the, the little cups of juice with a little wafer on top. And if you didn't, uh, raise your hand or, or find an usher. Um, okay, we've got a couple of people, so hang on just a moment. And we'll make sure that we get those for you. Dave DeGarmo is moving rapidly right now. Um, if you are home, this is something that we do the first of every month. And one of the things that maybe we should do better is, is preparing those who are home online that we do remember the Lord's death for us by taking communion the first Sunday of every month. And if you're here, you just have to participate along with us and we provide everything. But if you're at home, maybe this caught you by surprise and, and that's okay I want to encourage you to go ahead and worship the Lord as we read scripture, as we take a, a little piece of bread that symbolizes his body and drink a little bit of juice that symbolizes his blood for us. This is something that the Lord Jesus commanded believers to do. It can be a very serious time as we're encouraged to examine our hearts and remember that we still need the cleansing of Jesus' blood until we see him face to face or he calls us home. And so this is a time to examine your hearts and to confess your sin. And yet it should never leave you discouraged or fearful because the blood of Jesus is sufficient, more than sufficient to cover every sin. And so as we approach the throne of grace, our Father continues to give us grace and we celebrate what Jesus has done for us by walking away forgiven assured of the love of God for us. And so as we prepare to take communion, I, I want to invite you, I, I always like to encourage you to peel this back. I, we don't want any distractions when we go to take communion together. So go ahead and, and take hold of that little, little cracker. There's nothing special about this. This is just a symbol, just a picture of Jesus' body given for us. And I want to remind you of some scripture in just a moment from the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing and telling the church how they ought to remember what Jesus did for them. He reminds them a few chapters before the passage we always read that we are united through Christ together. And I want to invite you to pray with me before I read the scriptures. Father, we were guilty and condemned, separated from you by our sin, in danger of judgment and eternal separation from you. And in your love and in your mercy, you sent your Son to take our punishment, to bear all of your wrath for us. And he gave his body for us on the tree so that we could have life and so that we could call you Father. And we want to praise you. And again, ask for the forgiveness of our sins. And if there's anything on the conscience of anyone here, I would urge you to call out to the Lord. Plead for His mercy, knowing that He is merciful and loves to forgive. Father, as we remember the body of Your Son beaten and crucified for us, we praise You for your great love for us shown on the cross of Jesus. We ask that you would bless us as we remember his sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, 
I received from the Lord. Jesus is the one who taught him to do this. What I also delivered to you, and that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we prepare to to take the cup in remembrance of Jesus' blood, I want to encourage you to peel back that little piece of foil. And again, let's take a moment and pray. Father, sometimes we treat our own sins lightly as if they're small and insignificant. But they required the blood of your precious Son. And we praise you that through the shedding of his blood, we find forgiveness. And you take what was once sinful and you make it holy and pure. And I pray that in the power of Jesus' blood, we would not only be cleansed from our sin, but we would walk in obedience. That as you write your law on our hearts, that we would find joy in doing all the things that you teach in your word. It's by the power of Jesus' blood that we are drawn into your family. And Lord, we praise you for his blood now. Pray that you'd bless us as we remember what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul continues, verse 25, he says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember the Lord's blood for us. things I, I want to mention in connection with communion. And, and the first, it's a stunning thing in this passage that's easy to miss. When Jesus walked the earth with the 12 disciples, including Judas, Paul was not there. And so when Paul writes and says, I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you, He's receiving this instruction from the resurrected Christ. So as we proclaim the death of Christ, Paul is saying that Savior who died, he is the one who taught me to remember this. And as you look and he says that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, it is a hopeful thing that one day we will see Jesus face to face. And the fact that Paul is the one saying... Jesus taught this to me is just another layer of evidence, just another proof of God that says Jesus didn't stay dead. 
He rose from the dead. He is coming again. Remember what he did for you until you see him face to face. And so I want to encourage you that your hope is in the risen Christ as we celebrate his death for us. Not only that, one of the other things that we have traditionally done, but we are not able to do right now, is that we always have taken a benevolence offering in connection with communion. Because as we've received the love of God, we want to share that love both with those of our congregation and those in our community who are in need. And so our benevolence offering helps pay for the food that we distribute through our pantry. And it helps people who are in need in a couple of different ways, Uh, again, both within the church and outside the church. And right now, we're not passing a plate or anything like that. If you give online, you can designate that you would like to give to the Benevolence Ministry. There's a little drop-down menu. And in fact, if you want to contribute to Benevolence, you have to make that change in order to contribute to that ministry. And I'd encourage you, as you've received the love of God, to set aside some money and to share it with those around you in a very practical way practical way. If you want to do that in person, uh, it doesn't have to be a fancy giving envelope. Not everyone here has the envelopes that come along with being part of a regular church, but just write something. Uh, It can even be a piece of paper wrapped around however you choose to give and say benevolence or or something like that, and you can contribute to our benevolence ministry that is continuing to meet the needs of thousands of people in our community. And and I don't exaggerate when I say thousands. Uh, Every Forgotten Harvest, we've been helping at least 400 households right here in our parking lot Uh, and throughout the week we've seen as many as 60 people come through to our pantry Uh, it's not always that high but thousands of people since this started have been blessed because of your faithfulness and giving and I want to encourage you that that comes from being changed by the love of Jesus that we celebrate in communion now as we continue our service We have worshipped through song, we have worshipped in prayer, we have worshipped in obediently following the Lord's teaching on communion. I want to invite you, let's let's worship the Lord together as we hear from his word. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter. It's been a little while since we've been in 1 Peter. And so for scripture reading, I want to read part of chapter 1 to you before I go to my sermon text today. Peter is writing to a group of people that have been forced to leave their homes. They're scattered in five different areas of of the ancient world. And he's writing to them as displaced people who are suffering and being persecuted. The times are beyond uncertain. They, They don't know so many things. And yet they have come to Christ and been saved. And Peter says this in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I want to invite you, if you have a Bible or you use a phone, to go just a couple chapters over to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want to use an illustration as I go there that's a bit of a stretch for me. I am not a guy, like I appreciate science. I've always loved reading about different technologies and astronomy and all kinds of stuff. But I'm going to be the first to tell you, I don't know that much about it. But I want you to imagine with me for a moment a chemical engineer. A guy who has studied, he, he studied how to make batteries in particular. And as we've lived over the past 20 years, they've made crazy advances in battery technology. I don't know how many of you remember getting your first smartphone, but it it used to be that with the smartphone, you carried your charger with you everywhere because it would not last a single day. You would get four to six hours on a charge and you'd be like, man, this is amazing. I have this little computer that I carry in my pocket with me, but I do have to charge it. So you knew all the people that got smartphones right away because they would walk in and they'd be like, where's where's an outlet? Can I plug this in somewhere? That was not that long ago. And within the span of 10 years, now it's very common for batteries to stretch not only a whole day, some of them stretch two or three days. And if you stay off your phone, they'll actually stay even longer than that. Not only that, I don't know if you remember, some of you guys remember when cordless drills were pretty new and you, you didn't have to plug your drill in anymore. But the funny thing was, I remember Kurt Bombeck had a Black & Decker cordless drill that it actually had these goofy little power cells, the two separate ones that plugged into the handle. And he was so proud of it. He loved it. It was great. But you could only use it for like 30 minutes and it was dead. And there was just, you were like, Why? I just, just plug this in. This is stupid. But within the span of 10 years, chemical engineers who understand how different elements work and how different parts of battery cells work, they have engineered batteries so that they are better and better and better. And now, you not only use cordless drills for hours, you use cordless circular saws, you use cordless weed whackers. They're, they're everywhere because battery technology has improved so much. But think for a moment about the chemical engineers that have made that possible. Now, there's something that's required for advances in technology like that. Number one, you have to have a passionate pursuit of truth. Think of a chemical engineer that says, you know what? Lithium is out there but we can't know about it. It's something we're never going to agree on. It causes division the more we study about lithium. Right? No, if you're going to make advances in technology, you have to agree that truth is real and that truth is knowable, and you have to recognize, I don't know it all. And so a chemical engineer will devise different experiments as they interact with different elements to figure out what those elements are capable of as they stretch what used to be possible to make new and different things possible. The pursuit of truth has to happen. But now, I, I don't know how many of you have, have ever met an engineer who might be a little bit proud. This happens sometimes, not just to engineers. 
Sometimes people have great insight into truth, but they don't have any friends because they're real jerks. So it's not just pursuit and knowledge of truth. We don't have one chemical engineer to thank for advances in battery technology. It's the pursuit of truth and the ability to share that knowledge and to work as a team so that you can achieve your goals in technology. Now, we've all reaped the benefits of brilliant engineers in many different areas of our lives. And if that's true in secular science, and I almost hate the term secular science because it's all something that God created. But if that's true of people who don't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, how much more true is it of the church of Jesus Christ? That if we are going to advance the kingdom of God, we need two things. We need a passionate pursuit of truth And we need the ability to love our brothers and sisters within the church so that the kingdom of God can advance leaps and bounds. Both are necessary. We cannot, for even a moment, pretend like biblical truth is unknowable, like scholars disagree, so I just can't know. You can't be indifferent. You can't be lazy. And for the few of you who love to read and know theology, You also can't be a jerk. You also have to love your brothers and sisters and be able to talk about what's true in such a way that the church moves forward in unity, remembering her mission is not to guard truth like a dragon on a pile of treasure, but her mission is to seek and save the people that don't know the truth, the people that don't know the love of God. Her mission is to love those who are difficult and hard to love so that they come to know the truth and love our Savior. And so from our text today, those are the two things that I I want you to see and appreciate. That our pursuit of truth and unity is essential for us at First Baptist Church of Holly and indeed in every church where the gospel is proclaimed. Our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 12. And I want to remind you, just a little bit before we read Scripture reading, I mentioned that, Paul, that Peter is writing to these different people that have been forced to move out of Rome into some different communities across the ancient world. But in chapter 2, he addresses some particular groups of people who are especially vulnerable. He said in chapter 1 in the Scripture we just read, you are going to suffer. God's going to use that suffering in your life. You have a, a future that is hopeful. And, and the end of chapter 2, excuse me, partway, partway through, he says that you are to keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable so that when people who are not Christians speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now he's talking to people who are suffering They're persecuted for a number of different things. In the ancient world, people thought that Christians were cannibals because of what we just celebrated in communion. There were rumors that they ate bodies and drank blood, and that was misunderstood. And sometimes even when it was understood, people lied about it so that they could steal and malign and sometimes even kill Christians. 
Killing Christians was popular entertainment in Colosseums all across the ancient world. And so Christians really were persecuted and they really did suffer. And Peter tells them, okay, as you suffer, live in such a way that people see how precious Jesus is. That they see that your hope is not in this life, but they see that your hope is in Jesus. And that no matter what happens here, you have a hope that is secure that nothing can take from you. And so Peter writes to slaves who had the least amount of rights in the ancient world. And he writes to women who had very few rights in the ancient world. And he says a lot to them about how they are to live as Christians who don't have rights, who will suffer. Then he says a brief word to husbands who may be living with unbelieving wives. Uh, but either way, husbands are also commanded they're to live with their lives in an understanding way, showing honor to them so that their prayers are not hindered. And he ends that section talking to vulnerable people, showing them how you live in such a way that you give God glory. And then after addressing slaves and wives and husbands, our text begins, finally, all of you. Finally, all of you. So if you're a single person and you've been waiting, this is your text. But if you are a married person, if you are a woman, this includes you as well. Finally, all of you. Peter is turning and addressing the whole church. And he says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So my single point for today is that if we are going to obtain a blessing, we have to have unity and truth and mutual love within the church before we ever try to do anything outside the church. The church must be united in what she believes and in her love. If she lacks either one of those things, she will not be blessed. And I'll talk in a minute what it means to be blessed. But before I do, I want to point to you, if you read the beginning of Revelation, Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, they have great teaching. In other words, they know truth, but they've left their first love. And so Jesus warns them that they are in danger of judgment. Then he turns and he talks to the church at Pergamum and they tolerated false teaching. And Jesus acknowledges Thyatira had love. They had the reputation in their community. Man, those people are so full of love. But Jesus says to them, they tolerated false teaching. And he warns both of those churches that that could have been very loving but tolerated false teaching and they are in danger of judgment. Jesus' desire for his church, for our church, is that we would be passionate about what's true and also passionate about loving each other and our community. Both are required. Jesus himself proves it in Revelation as well as in this text. 
Peter is talking to believers. He's talking to those who have already come to Christ. He's talked to them about recognizing Jesus is the Savior, that he's the one who died for their sins and rose from the dead. They have heard that good news preached. And when they believed the message they've heard, they were saved. And now, in a stunning way, he warns them that if they ignore this unity of mind, and if they fail to have this heart of love, that the face of the Lord may be against them. In fact, they are doing evil when they neglect truth and when they neglect love. Now, they might have been Christians for years, but this warning at the end of our text is aimed at the church. And we don't like to think about that today. We we don't like to think that God might actually judge Christians or even whole churches. But this is not the only text that has warnings like this. I already mentioned how Jesus is so stern with the churches in Revelation. He's also very encouraging. But the reality is we forget sometimes that God holds us accountable for how he has already worked in our lives and he expects us to live consistently with his grace and his faithful, steadfast love. And Peter is is writing a warning that I think we need to hear. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that he's also promising a blessing. So let's keep these things in tension. Let's heed the warning. Let's seek the blessing. And to begin with, let's look at God's command of unity, love, and grace just in verses 8 and 9. We're going to slowly go through a couple of these verses. Verse 8 says, Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Some people want to achieve unity by avoiding difficult topics. They skip over portions of the Bible, and they may not even recognize they're doing it. Their hearts are just drawn to the passages they love, and they neglect the passages that are difficult. This is why I'm so committed to preaching all the way through whole books of the Bible, so that I don't have the option, so that the Word of God compels me and forces me to talk about things that God says matter most. It's easy and popular to neglect topics like gender or hell or divorce or human sexuality because those things can make people angry. And some people would even say, when you talk about this, you just drive people away. The church is never going to grow when you talk about things that are unpopular. But the reality is, you can have a happy crowd that does not know the Lord Jesus. And a faithful shepherd is going to try to make sure that the whole church is ready to see Jesus face to face. And so when we as First Baptist Church of Holly work towards unity, sometimes we must talk about things that may actually drive people away. And if that happens, that's the Word of God pruning the church. That's God at work in our midst to help us achieve unity. See, unity is not achieved by avoiding hard conversations. You actually already have a fracture and a division in your midst. You're just ignoring it. It's like trying to look at a crack in the foundation of your house and just getting some wallpaper and covering it. 
Well, the Word of God says, no, you've got to repair the damage. You've got to know what's true. If your church is not built on the foundation of the Word, it will not stand. And so unity comes not by avoiding difficult topics. Unity comes by humbly submitting to what the Word of God teaches about those topics. Peter will emphasize truth in verse 15 of this passage. Chris is going to preach on that next week. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, be ready to defend what you believe and why you believe it. Know the truth. Peter's not saying have unity of mind by ignoring truth. Earlier in this passage, he's also talked about being united by the truth. He says that you have purified your souls, if you are a believer, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Truth comes first, and then comes brotherly love. And so I want to urge you, as we've wrestled with different things in our church, and some people have said, you know, I don't believe that that's what God wants, even though that's what His Word says, and they've walked away. Well, that's not division by focusing on something difficult. That's the Word of God setting out what's true. That's the Word of God confronting us, and when we walk away from it and don't allow it to change us, we are the ones who are wrong. And so I want to urge you today, as we look towards the future, to commit again to being humble under the Word of God, to seek unity about truth and doctrine. And and of course, there are going to be things that, that we disagree on and we can have unity. There are different levels of disagreement. But it starts by being teachable and humble under the Word of God. One of our church mottos for years has been a commitment to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But sometimes, instead of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've said, knowledge is for eggheads. We can't be bothered. And so we just try to have a happy sort of false unity without any studying. That's not unity, church. And so I want to urge you to commit again to being a careful student of the Word of God, to being humble under all that it teaches, whether it's popular or not, whether it's painful or whether it's something that gives you great hope, all of it is intended for your good. And all of it will lead to a rock-solid unity that cannot be shaken. So let's build on that foundation. We not only need unity about truth and doctrine, we need unity about ministries that we work together on. Sometimes people have great ideas, and if we say yes to all of them, we will not do any of them well. And poor ministries don't reach people, and they don't build the church. So we need unity of focus. What will we do together as we begin gathering again, as we think about Wednesday night programs and Sunday morning programs? What will we do so that people grow in knowledge of the truth, so that we can actually have true unity? Not only that, sometimes the ministries we do, people fight and bicker about things, and I believe their hearts are good. They want to serve the people of our community best. But when I see different people fighting and saying, Pastor, you have to deal with this now, this is not Christian unity. And I understand there are going to be times where we're frustrated and angry with each other. That's inevitable. But how we deal with that matters so much. And that gets into not only needing unity about truth, 
that gets into having brotherly love so that when you disagree with a brother or a sister, that relationship is not fractured or damaged beyond repair, but instead, you love one another through the disagreement. You recognize, you know what? I don't agree with how many chickens we're going to give out right now, but I recognize your heart of love to serve people as best as we can. So I'm going to love you through this disagreement, and maybe it means I'm going to let you have your way, or maybe it means I can't let you have your way. The chickens don't matter. What matters is the love of Christ that's supposed to unite the people of our church. Of course, there are going to be people that don't know the Lord that that come and serve from our community, but unfortunately, those are not usually the people that cause problems. Unfortunately, the divisions within our church are usually between members who actually know the Lord and love each other and sometimes get so distracted trying to serve the community that they forget that we're called to have a brotherly love and that brotherly love is a witness to the community more than the chicken we give out. In fact, if we don't love each other, it doesn't matter how faithfully we feed the community. No one will be drawn to Christ. And so, church, I want to urge you, and maybe you're hearing this and you feel like I'm picking on you. I'm not picking on anybody. I am urging you to recognize that we need to be united, not only in truth, but we need to be united in our love of one another so that our ministries show the church and the world the love of Jesus. That's not trite. That's not cliche. That's why we're here. Peter urges us that all of us are to have this unity of mind. He he mentions a couple of things. I I was talking to Dave Padgett earlier this week about this list. He said, how much time are you going to spend defining terms? Not a lot. I I think as you read through it, you can appreciate a a little bit that, that Peter is just telling us to love other people. But I will take a second and say this. He mentions sympathy, and then he mentions having a tender heart. What's the difference between sympathy and a tender heart? Well, I think I know what it is. I spent a little bit of time reading a couple different terms in in the Greek. And sympathy in Greek is sympathy. It's really frustrating when that happens. Our English word is the Greek word. And all it means is that you share the feelings of someone else. Particularly feelings of grief and suffering. So that you're not indifferent to someone else, whether it's a member of the church or whether it's someone in the community. Sympathy means you share their feelings. Here's the one that's exceptionally hard, though. When it says a tender heart, the Greek word for that is ridiculous, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. It it actually literally means your guts. And in Hebrew culture, what that means is especially mercy and compassion. See, we associate mercy and compassion with your heart. So you say, man, it just grabbed me in the heart. That's what this is talking about. And mercy especially is applied to frustrating people that should be punished in some sense, but they get away with it. That's, that's mercy. It kind of makes us angry. It's when a guilty person doesn't get the punishment they deserve. And do you know who is a guilty person who didn't get the punishment they deserve? I am. Scott, I appreciate that you raised your hand. You are too. And so is everyone who has believed in Jesus. We are people who deserve the guilty punishment that we have earned for ourselves. And God in his mercy gave that punishment to Jesus Christ and let us go scot-free. And so if we have received mercy, God desires that we would be merciful to other people. 
You don't judge the people that, that come in for food and say, man, they've made bad life choices. You give them mercy. You don't look at your brother and sister in the church and say, man, it's a frustrating person to serve with. They, they just, man, they, they blow up every time they don't have their way. Yeah, that might be true. You know what? God didn't give you what you deserve either. You need to give them mercy. And so church, I want to urge you to remember it's so easy to apply this to other people and to think of all the people that are frustrating and difficult to serve with and I'm one of them. I'm not pointing fingers at other people and saying, you know, you guys, man, when there's a problem, I love to let someone else take care of it. That's not great. That's not helpful. So I'm not preaching this to you as if you people have problems and I don't. I'm saying all of us are called to have a love of the truth and hearts that are full of sympathy. We share and appreciate the feelings other people have and hearts that are tender, that we give mercy to people that are in sin, but we forgive them anyway because God has forgiven us and we trust that God will deal with them. Now, Peter is not in any way in favor of ignoring sin or wallpaper overing cracks in the foundation. He wants to deal with it. But the foundation of dealing with sin in the Christian church is the blood of Jesus and the forgiveness that we all share. And so if I see you in sin, I'm not going to come alongside you and say, get out, this is not a place for you. I'm going to say, hey, I love you. How can I help? How can I pray for you? This is not something that is okay in a Christian community. Church, some of our food ministries have had bickering and fighting that is inexcusable, and it needs to stop. But, but I don't want to tell anybody, you can't serve or you can't serve. Or, it, no, my goal is to say, let's remember the grace of God in our hearts and in our lives. Let's be encouraged by God's love for us. And then let's show that love to the frustrating people we serve with every single week, especially your pastor. Remember that all of us need this mercy. All of us need this grace. So Peter says, have unity of mind. That's, that's where I'm getting truth. He says, share this brotherly love, this sympathy. Share this tender heart. Have this humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. That's where I'm getting grace, okay? Because... It, Repaying evil for evil is justice, right? We love the stories of justice. I, I mean, I watch Avengers cartoons with my kids. They love justice when the villain gets his own. Peter's saying, don't repay evil for evil. But on the contrary, bless. When someone does something evil to you, whether it's a Christian or whether it's not a Christian, you bless that person. And Peter says, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Why and how? What, what is he talking about? How do you bless someone who has reviled you? Well, you bless them when you don't return anger for anger. When someone's angry with you and you are patient with them, you are blessing them whether they know it or not. And even if they never recognize it, God sees and God recognizes it. And so Peter is teaching us to show the grace that we have received from Jesus. And he motivates that by saying that you and I will obtain a blessing when we do this. Now, it might not be a check in the mail. It might not be a roof that doesn't leak. There are tons of things that we desire that we would say, man, what a blessing. Here's what I think he's talking about especially. In fact, I know what he's talking about because he tells you a little bit later on. He's talking about the favor of God in our lives. He's talking about 
a God that hears our prayers and is with us in our suffering and grief so that in those moments of trial, they are some of the precious and sweetest moments that we've ever experienced because we know the presence of God in our hearts and in our lives. God's reward is a love of life. Read verse 10 and 11 with me. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. You know what's easy to do when you see someone do something frustrating in another ministry? It's easy to let your tongue do what's evil. Now, we would never call it that. We would never admit that our tongues can be evil. Because we think of evil as something out there that other bad people do. But Peter is saying to suffering people who are being wronged. He's writing, some of these women are probably wives who were abused. Certainly the slaves were physically beat. And many of them were sexually abused. And he's saying, when you receive evil, don't return evil with your tongue. Don't destroy another person with your words. And the motivation for that is that you will have a love of life and good days. Now, good days don't mean free from trial because Peter has made it clear that these are suffering Christians who are experiencing terrible things. What I believe he's talking about, because what he says next, is the assurance that God is with you in your trial. I remember talking to, to Debbie Morse. I asked her once, not this week, it was a while ago, I said, can you tell me about a time when you remember being especially close to Jesus? You know what she said? She said it was when her her daughter, Tanya, died in a terrible car accident. She was on life support at a hospital, and they had to take her off life support because the doctors told her that she wasn't going to live. And she said in almost a tangible way, she knew the presence of Christ in that moment. Now, Jesus didn't spare her and Kenny from that trial. He didn't. He let them walk through it. But do you know what Jesus did for them in that trial? He was with them in a way that they have never experienced at any other time in their lives. Now, I don't think they would call that a good day in many senses. It was the worst day of their lives. And yet the presence of Jesus was with them in such a good and such a rich way that they know him better. Some of these people are literally going to be fed to lions that Peter is writing to. He's not saying you're going to have good days in terms of owning your own home and and having the American dream. He's saying that God will be with you like he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And there was a fourth man that was with them in the flames and they were unharmed. Those young men understood, man, we might perish, but even if we do, we trust in the God who has given us good promises. If that's true of them before Christ, how much more should it be true of us who know the love of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ? The reward for having this unity of truth and this brotherly love is the pleasure of God in our lives. And so here is to conclude God's promise and warning. We've looked briefly at God's command, which is unity, love, and grace. We've looked at God's reward, loving life. Let's end looking at God's promise and warning. 
says in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, I believe that he is saying that last line in part to believers. He is warning them, just like James, just like Jesus, that if they continue to gossip and tear other people down, and if they continue to be divisive, that God will turn his face against them and will not hear their prayers. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean God might not hear someone's prayers? Well, look just a little bit earlier at what God says to husbands. says they're to live with their wives in an understanding way so that your prayers might not be hindered. And if he's saying to husbands, look, God's not going to listen to your prayers if you don't live with with your wife in an understanding way. He's also saying, Christian, God is not going to listen to your prayers if you don't live with your brothers and sisters in Christ in an understanding way. So if you've had a big fight with someone at the church and you haven't sought any unity or healing and then you go home and you feel like God is distant, that's the reason. It's not that he's left or he's any further away. He's faithful and he will pour out his mercy on you, but he wants you to seek unity with other believers in the church that he has placed you in. So seek unity. Don't seek to have someone force your will on everyone else. That's not unity. Seek what the scripture says. Love your brothers and sisters. Seek forgiveness if you have sinned. And from there, pray to the Lord and know that the eye of the Lord is on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. God sees you. God hears you when you are faithful to the gospel that you have believed in. Now, I believe there's great mercy that there are going to be a host of very guilty people in heaven that have failed in many ways. But that doesn't excuse indifference. And so church, I want to urge you, I've maybe harped a little bit on some of our ministries that I believe are a great blessing to this church and our communities. I don't mean to pick on anybody, but my passion is that we would genuinely be united about the truth and in our love for each other. That we would have a reputation of a church that's faithful to all that the word of God says and a reputation that says, man, the people who are members of that church especially are full of love for each other and for the people of the community they work with. I don't know that we have that reputation right now, to be honest. My concern is sometimes our fighting has given us a reputation of being a bickering church. And it's my prayer that that would not be true. And if you've seen these things and been part of these things, my prayer for today is that you would repent if you need to repent and that you would seek forgiveness from a brother or a sister and that you would move forward, not giving up on ministry or backing away from it or saying you're done, but instead moving forward and saying, I am committed to serving the Lord Jesus Christ with my fellow saints until he returns or calls me home in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Church, there are so many things that that I think we need to think about. I I mentioned a passion for the truth. We need to think about how are we going to disciple people of every age, whether it's Sunday school or small groups. I don't know. Both of those seem impossible right now, and they might not be possible for a while. Most churches have ministries that cater to niches, so you've got like men's ministry over here, and you've got women's ministry over here, and never they, they don't mix. 
And that's not unity. I mean, there's nothing wrong with men's ministry or women's ministry, but we need unity in our church. All people have to be built up in the knowledge of the truth. And, and so there are questions of how will we move forward in ministry? What is something that people of our church will attend where they grow in the knowledge that gives us true unity? How can we avoid indifference and say, you know, the, the word of God is not just for pastor and not just for super spiritual people, but the word of God is for all of us. That's a threat to our unity. And how can we avoid hurt feelings and indifference when ministries sometimes do blow up a little bit? Church, my prayer is I don't have all of these answers, but that we would seek them together. And so as I close, I want to ask if you would spend a few moments with the Lord in prayer, that you would seek his presence and heart in your life, that if some of what I've said has been offensive and convicting, that you would wrestle with what God is saying to you from his word. And it's my prayer that I've been fair. I, I don't want to be unfair to anybody. Not only that, that you would ask the Lord to establish leaders in our church that would teach everyone. My, my prayer is that we would have men especially who would disciple the whole congregation, whether you're 80 or 8, so that all of us would grow in knowledge of the truth. My prayer is that kind of leadership would be established within a few years and just ask the Lord to bless us as we seek to be obedient to his word. So as we've talked about truth and as we've talked about unity, let me end this by praying for us that God would bless us with both. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, our hope is in you. It's, it's not in us. We, we are fallen, we are broken and fail in many ways. But you are faithful. You have continued to build your church in spite of the failings of people for thousands of years now, and you will not stop. Father, I pray that you would build it here at First Baptist Church of Holly. Father, I pray for those who, who are disinterested and uninvolved and, and don't do much. God, I pray that you draw them in. Give them a desire to know you more deeply through your word. Give them a desire to serve more faithfully in this place so that your kingdom is built here. Father, I pray for those who have hurt feelings. I pray for those who are feeling isolated and neglected and alone. God, unite us in every way. Father, I pray that we would remember your mercy on each of us and that we would give that mercy to the people around us. Father, your work through your word is our hope, and we cast ourselves upon it and ask that we would find you faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.